I wholeheartedly believe beyond any doubt that this book we've produced and the ministry opportunities associated with it have all been ordained by God. I sat in the meeting in Columbia that afternoon and listened to Darren Lindley, who was there, explain the process several months ago, how the books are produced, how they're distributed, and I immediately felt a, a conviction that we were supposed to produce one of these testimony books. And yet, as convinced as I was that the Holy Spirit was leading me to sign up for this program, I was still really nervous about it because I knew that meant taking a significant uh, financial risk or making a significant financial commitment for an amount of money that we didn't have. And I'll never forget standing in the foyer of that church in Columbia where Good Catch Publishing had a booth set up and I just stood there about 15 feet away staring at the booth for several minutes trying to work up the courage to sign up for this book project. And it's funny because I look back now, and up to that point, we'd already been through so much over the past several years, having to, to depend on God for getting us to Alaska, which was a miracle, seeing Him make it possible for, for me to go to seminary in England, and then completely paying off that school bill, which was a miracle, having totally, uh, having to rely on Him to provide for us getting back to South Carolina, you know, to, just to move me. And my wife and kids and our stuff from Alaska to here cost us $15,000. And it was all paid for. How he provided for us to start a church in this building. And how we ended up getting the building. And then spending the first full year getting the ministry started here. Without a salary or any regular income. But he provided for every single need every step of the way. And so many other miracles we experienced along the way. He never failed us even once. And yet here I was, sweating the thought of signing up for this book commitment, even though I knew that he was leading me to do just that. I vividly remember standing there, staring at the Good Catch booth. And then one of the guys that, that went with us to that meeting from here, he walked up behind me. And I hadn't told anyone yet that, that went with us that I was thinking about signing up for the book. And he walked up behind me and put his hand on my shoulder. And he said, I know you're worrying about it, but don't. I'll get behind this. He said, let's sign up. And it was as if the Holy Spirit himself at that moment was saying to me, I am with you. So stop worrying about it. In fact, it was the Holy Spirit speaking through my friend in that moment, whether he realizes it or not. I know that it was, and it was exactly what I needed to hear to reassure me to take that next step forward. And so here we are today about to release our first book. And I can tell you that I've, I've literally felt a perfect peace about this entire project from that moment on. Everything has been provided for. Every need for the project, through you, of course, every step of the way has been provided for. So today, as we continue working our way through the book of Acts in our sermon series, the Acts of the Apostles, we're going to be looking at the first half of chapter 18 in a message entitled, I'm With You, where we actually see the Apostle Paul having a moment not so different from what I was experiencing at that meeting in Columbia. Although admittedly, uh, the stakes for Paul were probably slightly higher than they were in my situation at the time. And yet in his great mercy and concern for every single aspect of our lives and ministry, the Holy Spirit reassures us just as he did with Paul right when we need to hear it, that he is indeed with us. Let's turn to chapter 18 in the book of Acts, and we'll pick up where we left off from last week, right on verse 1. And just to set the scene from chapter 17, 
Paul has been in Athens up to this point, sharing the gospel there, not only in the synagogue, as was his usual practice, but also at the Oropagus, the center for pagan worship and secular philosophy in Athens. And just as he did everywhere else he went, Paul experienced both success in those that accepted the message and rejection from many who didn't. So it was kind of a mixed bag. But Paul once again, seems to fearlessly and faithfully carry out his calling to make disciples, despite the sometimes even violent resistance that he experienced. However, chapter 18 sheds some light on the person of Paul and maybe some of the personal struggles that he faced in the ministry, which I think all of us can probably relate to. Okay, so let's pick up the story in chapter 18, verse 1. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent, tent makers by trade. So Paul leaves Athens, and he heads to Corinth. This was a city of luxury and wholesale wickedness. It was uh, the home of the temple of Aphrodite, where it is said there were a thousand temple prostitutes who would come down into the city streets at night to ply their trade. The name Corinthian was a byword in that day in other cities. In, in Greek stage plays and dramas, Corinthians were always portrayed as drunks. One of the common uh, Greek sayings at the time was to play the Corinthian, which meant to live a life of drunkenness and corruption and depravity. Corinth was a, a very beautiful place. There was a lot of affluence there, but it was also an extremely difficult place to spread the gospel. And Paul knew that he had his work cut out for him in Corinth. And we'll come back to this in a few minutes. But soon after he arrives, he meets up with Aquila and Priscilla, and who were forced to leave Rome. And so they headed to Corinth as well. Uh, Claudius had expelled all of the Jews from Rome. Most scholars say that was in A.D. 49. Some say in A.D. 52. But either way, we know that the Jews had to leave there because there was a major disturbance in the Jewish synagogues because of the Christian message. So Claudius, attempting to tamp down uh, the uproar over these Christians who were spreading the gospel, sends all of the Jews out of Rome. He just expels them. And so most likely Aquila and Priscilla were probably already Christians when they met up with Paul in Corinth. And they all shared the same trade. They were all leather workers and tent makers. So they immediately band together, certainly because they were able to share in their profession, but far more significantly because they shared the same faith and mission and the importance of this relationship between Paul and Aquila and Priscilla turns out to be quite profound, as we'll see. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. And so when you read any time in the New Testament, it says someone was a worshiper of God. That's generally referring to a Greek, a Gentile, who was a God-fear, not a Jew. Okay? So as we've seen over and over again, Paul enters the synagogue and tries to convince the Jews and the Greek God-fears that Jesus is the Christ. And most of them, as usual, reject the message. And when verse 6 says that they opposed and reviled him, the word opposed in the Greek language there is antitasso. 
It means to battle against. And the word reviled in the Greek is the word blasphemeo, which means to blaspheme or to speak evil of. So, again, the opposition that Paul experienced in the synagogue, even when it didn't turn violent, was anything but innocuous. You know, it was anything but mild-mannered. On the contrary, they railed against Paul in the worst way. And he was certainly being threatened on a continual basis. You know, after being stoned nearly to death in chapter 14 in Lystra, he was then beaten and imprisoned in chapter 16 in Philippi, wrongly. And then an angry mob comes after him in chapter 17 in Thessalonica. So his fellow Christians smuggle him out by night to Berea. But the angry mob shows up in Berea as well, still pursuing him. So he gets smuggled to Athens, where the people mock him at the Areopagus before he leaves for Corinth. This is Paul's life. Stoned near to death, beaten, imprisoned, threatened, mocked, pursued, falsely accused, and forced to run for his life from one city to the next under the cover of night. There's more suspense and action and, and drama in Paul's life than in anything on television today. It's tempting to treat him like a superhero, like the stars that we watch on TV who never seem to be phased by anything, even though they're constantly battling the bad guys. But the truth is, Paul was deeply affected by this life that he was called to live. At times, he was very troubled. At times, he was very lonely. He was stressed. He feared for his own safety. Paul had doubts. At times, he lacked faith. He got angry. He made mistakes. Paul was as human as every one of us, and he needed reassurance at times just like we do. And obviously God knew that as well. And what we find in these verses in our text this morning is really a beautiful example of the reassurance of the Father. Just as Paul reaches a really low point in his life and ministry, which we'll get to in a moment. But first, in verses 6 and 7, exasperated from being rejected and threatened and mocked yet again. He lashes back at these unbelieving Jews. He yells at them, Your blood be on your own heads. Which is actually a quote from the prophet Ezekiel, who was expressing the same sentiment, a warning to the Jews in Ezekiel chapter 33, I think in verses 1 through 7. And then Paul leaves there and he moves in with the man. After saying, I'm done with the Jews, I'm done with you, he moves in with this worshiper of God, this Greek man who's house was next door to the synagogue, which I think is kind of funny, <laughs> because he says, I'm through with you, and then he moves in next door. But that act of him moving in with this guy next to the synagogue had to further anger uh, the Jews quite a bit, having Paul living right next door there, right? So this is a very high pressure, and make no mistake about it, he's in a high stress situation, and yet as we'll see, despite Paul's exclamation that he's done with the Jews, and I'm going on to the Gentiles, we know that his ministry, in fact, to the Jews as well as to the Gentiles continued. So let's keep reading verse 8. It says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, uh, believed and were baptized. So Paul's persistence and his proximity to the synagogue obviously pays off as the ruler of the synagogue becomes a Christian as well as many of the other people in Corinth. And yet Paul's obviously in a state of personal crisis at this point because of what we see happen in the next couple of verses. Let's keep reading verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, 
And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them, which was the longest Paul ever stayed anywhere other than Ephesus. Now, there's a bit more to these verses than meets the eye at first glance. First of all, the Lord wouldn't have bothered to say to Paul, do not be afraid, if there was no reason to say it, right? God doesn't waste his words or speak to people needlessly. And this was actually quite a bit more than just a preemptive or preventative statement or a simple encouragement by God to Paul. Paul was in fact in a very tough place and very much needed to hear the Lord say to him right then, Hey Paul, do not be afraid. But in fact, Paul was afraid. He was very afraid. If you read the verse in the original Greek, it can be translated as stop being afraid. Go on speaking and do not be silent because I'm with you. Some translators have it as do not be afraid any longer. Okay, so just to be clear, this wasn't God saying to Paul, Hey Paul, I know things look a little sketchy here. And and just in case you're thinking you might be worried about the future here in Corinth, you don't have to worry because I'm with you. That's not what God was saying. In fact, Paul already had that promise, uh, just as we do today from Scripture. Psalm 46, 1 through 3 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. This is, this is one example. If we had time, we could go all the way through Psalms and throughout the Bible where God has promised us over and over again that He is with us. And guess what? Paul knew the Scriptures. He didn't need a promise for the future at this point because in this moment, the great Apostle Paul was becoming unnerved. He was beginning to crack emotionally under the pressure. And honestly, we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't be any different with everything going on that he was dealing with, would we? Think about all that he's been through. A lot of uh, really long years and hard miles already in his ministry. He's faced brutality, attempts on his life, uh, constant threats and aggression from his own people. And he's literally been running for his life most recently from city to city. And here he is in Corinth, a considerably more affluent and in many more ways much more intimidating place than his previous stops along the way. And he gets verbally attacked, probably threatened by the Jews there as soon as he begins trying to reason with them in the synagogue. Now if you skip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, which is the letter to this church where we're reading about today, in Paul's letter there to the Christians at Corinth, as he looks back to this time, He says in retrospect, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Okay, every one of us has an emotional breaking point. Everyone does. And Paul is about to reach his. And honestly, who can blame him? In his darkest hour, that moment when Paul was stricken with fear and no doubt wondering what might happen to him, he didn't need to learn the scriptures. He already knew them. What Paul needed in his time of trouble, gripped with uncertainty, was to hear the voice of God clearly without any confusion or doubt telling him, Hey Paul, you can stop worrying because I am with you. If all we needed was the scripture to encourage and guide us and nothing else, we wouldn't need the voice or the evidence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, would we? And yet there are believers who who will emphatically tell you that the Spirit of God doesn't speak today and all that you need is the Bible. 
Well, good luck with that. When my wife and unborn child were laying in a hospital bed 18 years ago, bleeding to death from a potentially fatal car accident, I didn't need to hear a memory verse. I needed to hear the voice of God. When my mother lay in a coma six years ago and the doctor said, Hey, fellas, you better call in the family. It isn't looking good. I didn't need to recite a passage from the Bible. I needed to hear the voice of God. When I pray for you, every time you send me a message and you ask me to pray because some aspect of your life has just been shattered, I'm not only seeking the scriptures for encouragement for you in that moment, I'm also listening for the voice of God for you. Now we know that God speaks to us through His Word. Of course He does. His Word encourages us and guides us and it directs us and it inspires us. Of course it does. But there are times in those moments of desperation when we need to know that God is with us. Not just in the pages of His written Word. But right here, right now, in person. That is precisely why we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. That is Christ in us, giving us strength and guidance and encouragement so that we can continue on. When we pray and ask Jesus Christ to be Lord of our lives, to live in us, when we invite Him into our heart, as we often say in church, obviously there isn't a little Jesus that comes and lives inside of us, right? What happens in that moment when we invite Him into our heart? His Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. In 1 Corinthians 6.10, Paul explains to the Christians in Corinth that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. Now, why would he bother to send the Holy Spirit to live within us if all we needed was the Bible? Is the Bible truth? Yes. Is the Bible a guide for us? Yes. Do the scriptures bring comfort and consolation in times of trouble? Yes. Do we hear the voice of God through these pages? Absolutely we do. And believe me, there's no bigger fan. No bigger fan of the Bible in this church than me. I'm like a little kid in a toy store. Every time I get to sit down for a few hours of uninterrupted time and do nothing but study the Word of God. It is one of the greatest joys and passions of my life. But if that was all that was needed to live the life that He commanded us to as His followers and as the church, then we wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. Yet in John 16, 7, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. That seems unlikely. But He said Himself, Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away. Why? For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus said the Holy Spirit is a helper, and it is to our advantage that he comes. If we didn't need the Holy Spirit, he wouldn't have sent the Holy Spirit. The fact is we do need him every day in our lives, actively working on our behalf, and yes, speaking to us. And so when God promises us all throughout Scripture that He will be with us, He didn't only mean in the pages of this book. This is where the promises are recorded but they're experienced in here, in us. Okay, so yes, we know that God is with us through His Word, definitely. We see that in verse 5. Paul was occupied with the Word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Christ is expressed to us through His written Word, without a doubt. We also see that Jesus is, expresses Himself to us, or He's with us, through His Spirit in us. 
John 15, 26 tells us that his Holy Spirit bears witness about him through us. So we know that God is with us as we read and study and meditate on his word. God is with us in person as his Holy Spirit dwells within us. And we talk about those two elements of God's presence in our lives a lot, as we should. What I would like for us to look at then for the remainder of our time today are some of the other ways that he's expressed in our lives as demonstrated in Paul's life in this story, which gives us really a glimpse of what God means when he says, I'm with you. Okay? We know that he's with us in the word. We know that he's with us in person by his spirit living inside us. But how else does he choose to express himself in our lives in those dark times, those difficult hours, those situations that challenge us in the deepest ways? How do we experience God with us? How do we actually feel his presence and know his peace and provision through every circumstance in our lives? in addition to His Word and the Spirit. And I get this question from people a lot, and it is a great need. Sometimes we need to feel His presence and hear His voice, right? Paul certainly knew the Scriptures. And Paul certainly knew that the Holy Spirit was dwelling inside of him. And yet, Paul was still really worried He needed, the great Apostle Paul needed a tangible expression of Jesus Christ in his life in this moment of great distress. And what we find is that God responded to every need and provided for Paul in more ways than one when he needed it the most. And so one of the ways that we see this happening in Paul's life, meeting his emotional and material needs, is through other people. Okay, back to the beginning of the chapter. Paul meets up with Aquila and Priscilla which was no chance meeting. This was, in fact, a very important relationship that not only provided Paul with companionship when he was alone and worrying about his situation, but it also provided for him materially. They gave him a place to stay with them. They shared in their work, which was most certainly beneficial for all of them to pull their efforts in tent making and leather working. So overnight, Paul goes from being alone in a hostile environment potentially struggling for income, probably, as he was in this new city trying to get established, to living and working with a Christian couple who clearly cared very deeply for Paul. We know that because in Romans 6, 16, excuse me, verses 3 and 4, Paul explains that Aquila and Priscilla risked their lives for him at some point. He says, Greet Priscilla, which is another name for Priscilla, and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. So, This was no casual friendship. It's no coincidence that just when Paul is lonely and afraid and struggling to get by, God shows up in Paul's life by way of this couple who take him in and work with him and love him to the point of risking their own lives for him. And then in verse 5, Silas and Timothy show up from visiting the churches in Macedonia. And although it's not mentioned here in Acts, if you flip over to 2 Corinthians 11.9, we learn that Silas and Timothy brought provisions for Paul from the Macedonian churches. Paul reminds the Corinthian church that when I was with you and was in need, he says, which is another affirmation that Paul was in real trouble and struggling when he arrived in Corinth. He says, when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia. He's talking about Silas and Timothy here, supplied my need. So I refrained and I will refrain from burdening you in any way. 
God not only shows up big time for Paul through Aquila and Priscilla, but he shows up through the Macedonian Christians and then through Silas and Timothy who bring provisions for Paul in Corinth. But there's even more in store for Paul as God uses this titious justice to help take care of him. Okay, Paul moves into Justice's house, which was probably a great risk for Justice to have this man who was being vehemently opposed by the Jews living in his house with him right next door to the synagogue. And so we see one person after another, after another, after another, caring and providing for Paul. God is with us. And often that is expressed in our lives through other people. So don't miss that, okay? Don't overlook the point. Because God may be trying to provide for some of you through the lives of other people. And you can totally miss it if you're waiting for something more exciting or something more unexpected. I'm sure most of you have heard this story, so forgive me if you have. uh, But it applies. There's an old joke. There was a guy in his house... And a really bad flood came and hit his town. And as the waters began to rise to the windowsills, the fire department came by in a john boat. And they said, sir, we need to evacuate immediately. Please get in the boat and we'll take you to safety. And the man replied, no, thank you. I'm a believer in Christ and God is going to save me. I'm going to wait right here. And the boat left. And then as the waters rose to the second story and the man ran to the upstairs of his house, The rescue squad shows up in a bigger boat and they said, Sir, we need to evacuate right away. Please get in the boat and we'll take you to safety. The man stood his ground and he said, No, thank you. I trust in God to to deliver me. I'm going to wait right here. And then finally the waters rose to the roof line and the man was standing on the top of his chimney, the highest point he could get, the National Guard helicopter hovering overhead. Uh, They shout down over a loudspeaker and the guardsman says, Sir, this is your last chance. The flood waters are rising. We need to get you to safety right away. Please grab the rope and we'll hoist you up. And the man just shook his head and he said, I'm staying right here for I know that my God will save me. And then the helicopter left and the flood waters rose and the man drowned. Standing before God in heaven, hurt and confused, the man said, God, I don't understand. Your word says that you will never leave or forsake us. But when the flood waters came and I waited for you to save me, you didn't. Why didn't you ever come? To which God replied, I sent two boats and a helicopter. What more do you want? That's a silly example of an important truth. Often the way that God shows up in our times of trouble is through other people. And this is one of the reasons that we have the church. We're supposed to be in relationship with other believers. And at times... If you will allow others into your life, you'll find that some of the sweetest, most gratifying, profound, and fulfilling expressions of Jesus Christ in your life will come through other people. But you have to be willing to have those relationships. And of course, unfortunately, there are some, even in the church, who will surely take advantage of that in the worst way. And that can be very hurtful and very counterproductive. But we shouldn't allow bad experiences to alienate us from other people in general and from other believers specifically. Because once we decide that we're not going to allow anyone else in, once we put up that barrier... We're considerably limiting, if not completely cutting off, one of the most significant ways that God chooses to work in our lives through those other people. And I know that's easier said than done. I've certainly been hurt by people in the church. Uh, Even church uh, people have done some things that made us never want to come back to the church again. 
yet I know that I've caused hurt in other people's lives as well. And you can allow that to run your life and determine your outlook, or you can allow that to educate and mature and season your outlook. Okay, some of the wisest and most gracious people that I know are those who have been through tremendous hurt from other people. And yet, some of the most immature, angry, and bitter people that I know have been through tremendous hurt from other people. The key isn't avoiding all of the problems in this life. The key is how do we respond to those problems. That's the difference. John 16, Jesus said to his followers, In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. In other words, hey, guys, trouble's going to come. You can count on that. But I've already overcome all of that trouble, and I am with you. So don't let trouble overcome you. He's already made provision for you through every trial and tribulation, and often that provision will come through other people, okay? Another way that God expresses His presence in our lives is supernaturally which is what he did with Paul here in our story in verses 9 and 10. God speaks to Paul supernaturally through this vision. He says to him, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Interestingly enough, one of the reassurances that God gives Paul in this vision is the last point that we just talked about in our outline. God reminds him that no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my, are my people. In other words, I'm going to show up on your behalf through other people, which he does through Aquila and Priscilla. He does through the Macedonian Christians and then Silas and Timothy and then Titius Justice. And, and yet even with all of that help that's coming, God still makes a point to deliver that good news supernaturally through a vision. As if the tangible help wasn't enough, God communicates directly to Paul supernaturally, and I believe that he still does that with people today. I really do. There's a theological position that many believers hold to that is called cessationism. It's the belief that the gifts of the Spirit of God are no longer valid today. The cessationists are believers that say the only way that God speaks today is through the Bible. And of course, that is one way that God speaks to us today, but I do not believe that is the only way. And one of the chief reasons that cessationists give for the invalidation of the gifts of the Spirit being in operation today through believers is that the gifts, according to this theology, were only intended to be used by the original apostles for the purpose of establishing the New Testament church. And I have many rebuttals in Scripture for that position, and we won't go through them now, but I'll just say this. Twice in his first letter to the Corinthian church, once in chapter 12 and once in chapter 14, Paul says to the Christians there, who were not among the original apostles, earnestly desire the gifts. Why would he have told them to desire the gifts if they were unobtainable for anyone but the original apostles? Okay? God is immutable. He's, it means he's unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has always been and he remains a supernatural God. Able to speak to us and operate through us and others supernaturally through the gifts of the Spirit. And just as he speaks to Paul in a vision, he can speak to you and me 
directly and supernaturally if he chooses to do so. God is not limited in what he can do by a particular time or dispensation of history. I'm all about the apostles. They're awesome. I can't wait to meet them one day. But we give them far too much credit and the Holy Spirit far too little credit when we begin to make arguments that say this only applied to this special group of people. God's not limited by how great we are. He's not limited by that. And so often what we find in Scripture and what I found in my own life is that generally speaking, when God speaks to us or reveals something to us or encourages us or, or uh, directs us supernaturally, that most often comes out of those times when we're completely focused on Him. In other words, when we're praying, we're meditating on Him, when we're worshiping Him, when we're seeking Him earnestly, that is most often when He communicates supernaturally to His people. And that isn't a formula, it's a function, it's a result of our undivided attention, our complete focus on Him and our desire for Him. And we see it in Scripture, in Acts chapter 10, we see Peter praying on a rooftop when he receives a vision from God. In Genesis chapter 24, Isaac is out in a field meditating on God. And the Lord, by his supernatural direction, leads Rebecca, Isaac's future wife, to him. In fact, I've thought, you know, instead of the whole online dating scene, we ought to just encourage people to go out to a field and meditate on God for a while. Who knows? It can't hurt, right? He might send your spouse to you. It worked for Isaac. I'm going to start a little dating site lead people out to the field. Okay, anyway, Matthew chapter 3. God speaks supernaturally to Jesus and those around him when when he's being baptized. Acts chapter 8, God speaks supernaturally to Philip. He's doing the work while he's doing the work that God commanded him to do. Sometimes God chooses to express himself supernaturally to his people. And I believe when that happens, it is most often when we're completely focused on him. And we see that here with Paul, even though he's in a very vulnerable state emotionally. Verse 5 says that he was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And we know from verse 8 that he leads the ruler of the synagogue to Christ. All this happens just before he receives the vision from God. If you want to hear from God. If you need to hear his voice in your life today, the best guidance that I can offer you is to suggest that you take the time and make the effort to spend a significant portion of each day, which can be a real sacrifice to be sure, seeking him and worshiping him and meditating on him and praying to him. Because I believe that it is in those times that he most often speaks to us through the revelation of his word, through someone else, and even at times supernaturally by the Holy Spirit inside of us. Okay? So we know that he expresses himself in all of these ways. His word, his spirit, through others, through his voice supernaturally. And finally today as we finish our text for the morning, uh, we see that he expresses himself. He, he shows us that he's with us through our circumstances. Sometimes God simply works in our circumstances on our behalf and we don't really have any direct hand in that process at all. But if you pay attention to what's happening, you can often see his hand in it quite clearly. For me, most often that is in hindsight. I can see how God worked in my situations in life without me even realizing it at the time. But looking back, I can see that his sovereign hand moving on my behalf in my circumstances is undeniable. So let's read about six more verses and then we'll finish up for today talking about God in our circumstances. We'll start at verse 12. 
But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. There's some really interesting interplay here between the Jews and the Roman proconsul. And it turns out that this was a, a decisive moment for Paul, not only personally, but for his ministry of planting churches all over the ancient world. From a personal standpoint, it seems as if the prophetic vision given to Paul supernaturally by God was failing, at least at first, as Paul is dragged before the Roman tribunal, which was the proconsul's judgment seat. This has disastrous potential written all over it for Paul. And yet, just as he's about to try and defend himself and go into his survival mode, the proconsul takes matters into his own hands without Paul having to say a word. God was fulfilling the prophecy to Paul personally by acting through his circumstances. And Paul didn't even have to open his mouth. And, and an interesting side note here on Gallio, his brother was the famous first century writer Seneca. And we know from Seneca's writings that both he and his brother, Gallia and Seneca, both had a very strong disposition toward justice and morality, even though they were pagan. In fact, they were so opposed to the corruption in any form that both Seneca and Gallio were later killed by Nero, who's the same guy that killed Paul. So Seneca and Gallio were executed about a de decade after this event uh, in our story by the same man that killed Paul. I think that's an interesting side note. So God is using this pagan Roman ruler, Gallio, who believes strongly in the rule of law and fairness and morality to deliver Paul from these angry Jews that wanted him dead. God is using circumstances far beyond Paul's control to act on Paul's behalf. But to be sure, the ramifications of this event were even much bigger than Paul's personal needs. Because this ruling by the Roman proconsul paved a safe passageway for Paul to be able to continue preaching and planting churches all over the Roman-controlled territories. This was a legal precedent that in effect was saying that Christians were innocent of transgressing Roman law when teaching and following Christian doctrine. This ruling is what allowed Paul to continue his work. So God not only met Paul's personal needs, but he provided for the future work of the church to continue by moving through other people and circumstances completely out of uh, Paul's reach. And all the Jews could do was drag the current ruler of the synagogue out in front of the tribunal in their frustration and poor Sosthenes, who probably succeeded Crispus after Paul led him to Christ. And Sosthenes is also a believer now, by the way, led to, to Christ by Paul, which we know because he's actually the co-author of 1 Corinthians with Paul. If you turn to 1 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, you, you can see that. So Paul has led two synagogue rulers Jewish men to Christ and they drag Sosthenes out and he gets beaten up in Paul's stead in their frustration and yet the proconsul doesn't even pay any attention to it. So I've, I always feel sorry for uh, poor old Sosthenes. You know, he gets a big promotion and then he gets beaten up for it. Not so good for him, but for Paul and the church, 
the news couldn't be any better. This was an emphatic statement by Gallio, even by his silence, that Paul is free to continue the work of the Lord. Okay, so this prophetic vision given to Paul by God was fulfilled through these circumstances that Paul had absolutely no say in. And there's a great lesson for us in this, as you might guess. Sometimes as we pour ourselves out for God, as we work for Him, or we're trying to do everything right, sometimes things still go wrong. Problems arise. People don't always cooperate. And it can be easy to feel like the world is conspiring against you. And it's important that in those times we don't lose sight of the fact that God is always working on our behalf. And often He does that through our circumstances. And sometimes in those circumstances there's absolutely nothing that we can do to influence or manipulate any of that for our own benefit. Sometimes we simply just have to trust Him to do what only He can do. Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very distant help in trouble. That's not what it says, is it? It says a very present help in trouble. God is with us. He's present with us because His Spirit dwells inside of us. He's with us everywhere we go. In fact, that's why I'm hesitant to invite Him into our worship services and times of fellowship, which I've heard people do in church my whole life. I hesitate to do that. Why? Because He's already here. He lives inside of us. And I don't want to give people the impression that He's a distant God. You know, we can't conjure up just the right atmosphere or mood to coax the Holy Spirit into arriving He's already here. He's everywhere that we are because He lives inside of His people, the church. What we can and should do every time that we meet is determine to yield ourselves, our will, in deference to His. We become less so that He becomes more in us and then we allow Him to rule over every aspect of our lives, which is not easy to do. But the more control that we yield to Him, the more active He becomes in our lives because we're no longer suppressing His Spirit within in us. Rather, we're allowing Him to take over completely. That's when we see the gifts of the Spirit in operation in our lives. We talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which I believe is simply a yielding to Him and letting Him take over completely. That's when we see Him moving on our behalf because we get out of the driver's seat and we allow Him to take control. He's already here in every Christian. And when we do that, He will accomplish His purposes and express Himself in our lives, often apart from any effort or ability on our own, in His sovereignty, because He works on our behalf through others. He works on our behalf through our circumstances, and at times He works on our behalf even supernaturally without us lifting a finger or saying a word. Our responsibility is to spend as much time as possible in fellowship with His Word, in fellowship with His Spirit within us, and follow Him as He leads us. And then outside of that, we simply have to trust that He alone is our refuge and our strength. He is a very what? Present. He's a very present help in trouble. God is with us. He is always with us. Just before Jesus left this world, He said to His followers, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, what does He say? I am with you always to the end of the age. 
Matthew 28, 18 through 20. He is with us always.